Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the uh, video teaching series, How to Pray Like the Apostles Prayed. This is lesson number 16. And uh, we're going to talk, continue to talk about perseverance in prayer. Uh, but we're going to do it a little differently in this lesson. We're going to talk about a couple of uh, stories or parables Jesus told to demonstrate principle rather than talking about specifics of an individual. And so both of these uh, stories we're going to talk about in this, uh, this particular lesson, uh, both of them uh, involve Jesus, okay? And so the first one is a story. The second one is a, an experience of his. And uh, there's so many great things for us to be taught in this. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 5. If I can get situated here. <laughs> At Luke chapter 11, verse 5, uh, the scripture says, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? Now, let me quickly tell you, Verse Luke 11, verse 1, that he was praying, and they said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. Verse 2 through 4, he taught them how to pray. And that prayer is, or, or principles of prayer, is found there and also in Matthew chapter 6. And he told us to pray after these things or according to these principles. And so this is what he said after he gave that instruction on prayer. So he's still teaching them how to pray. He's still teaching them how to pray. And so he said, and he said unto them, which of you having a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him because the, the culture of hospitality was so great there. I mean, there weren't a bunch of restaurants people could just stop by and get something to eat. So if people weren't willing to be hospitable and feed you, then you didn't eat. There weren't hotels and motels to stay in. And so uh, if people didn't keep you in their house, so the culture of hospitality was a major, major thing. And it was embarrassing to the whole household if someone came to stay with you and you couldn't feed them. So this man is very urgent. He has tremendous urgency when he goes to his next door neighbor or his neighbor and he says to him, and he goes to him at midnight and knowing the man's not going to be up. He knows he's not going to be up. He's going to be in the bed, but he is so, he has such an urgency because someone has come into his house that he can't feed them. And that is a shame to the whole house. And so he says, a friend of mine in his journey uh, is, is come to me, and I have nothing said before him. And he from within shall answer. Didn't he open the door? He just shouted at the, at the man at the door from within. And, say, and, he, and he from within shall answer and say, because this is still a hypothetical story. It's not an actual incident. Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because of he, he is his friend, 
Yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many, uh, presumably loaves of bread, as he needeth. Listen to the uh, English definition of the word importunity. The state or quality of being importunate. Persistence in solicitation. And the word, it also means importunities. Importunate solicitations or demands. Now, the word importunate, which is the definition of importunity, means urgent or persistent in solicitation, sometimes annoyingly so. And then there's the word pertinacious. P-E-R-T-I-N-A-C-I-O-U-S. Pertinacious as as solicitation or demands. Or troublesome and annoying. So, I had to look this up too because I never heard of the word before. Pertinacious. The definition of the English word pertinacious means holding tenaciously to a purpose Course of action or opinion, resolute, stubborn or obstinate, extremely persistent, even to the point of being objectionably so. So the Lord said, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, Yet because of his importunity, not just his persistence, but because of his stubborn persistence and because uh, he was even willing, he was so opposed to being embarrassed because he couldn't feed the person that came to him that he wasn't taking no for an answer. And look at how Jesus applied this principle of importunity in his continued teachings to them about how to pray. Now, again, the title of this series is How to Pray Like the Apostles Prayed. So Jesus taught the apostles. The apostles practiced. Jesus taught them to pray like he prayed. The principles by which he prayed, he taught them how to pray. And then he commanded them to teach us how to pray. Now, they obeyed Jesus' instruction on how to pray. They taught us to pray. Are we praying like they prayed? So let's listen to some more of this instruction. Here, here's, here he up. I'm going to read that last verse again. Verse eight. And I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth. And the Greek grammar there is literally, for everyone that asketh and keeps on asking receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And the Greek there literally is, he that seeketh and keeps on seeking findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And the Greek literally is there. And to him that knocketh and keeps on knocking, 
it shall be open. So the English doesn't give us the full flavor of the Greek here, which is a confirmation of this message of importunity. Now, <laughs> the question then comes down to this. Why do we need to pray like that? Why don't God just give, give us what we're asking for? Why? Is he stubborn? Is he callous? Doesn't he care? None of those things are true. Why do we do that? He does that first and foremost because of what it, we need to learn about ourselves. As I've said before, prayer is not a wishing well where we throw in a quarter. Or if we really don't want to spend too much for this answer, we throw in a dime or a nickel or a penny. And we hope that something comes back to that. But if it doesn't, we haven't invested much, so we haven't lost much. Prayer's not like that. No. Prayers of iniquity, self-will, give me what I want, do for me when I want it, and by the way, do it how I want it done. Uh, the Lord doesn't pray answer those because we ask amiss so that we can consume those things by our own will, by the lusts of our flesh, which are appeasing our will. Right. So, our persistence in prayer demonstrates our faith. If we believe it's the will of God for this thing to be done, then we must pray. And we must pray until it happens. That doesn't mean continuously, but continually. Prevailing in prayer doesn't mean I pray without stopping praying. Praying without ceasing isn't meaning that I pray continuously, but I pray continually. It is, it, it is the priority, and I pray that. Does it mean I don't stop and eat or whatever it is else that it is that I, the Lord permits me to do? But there is this persistent, this continual knocking. It's not, give me, 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 give me. That's not asking and keep on asking. But it, it's coming back and, and, and say, Father, I, I believe you, and you've instructed me to pray for this, and I, I'm telling you, I believe this. I'm speaking this. I'm asking this. I'm seeking this. I'm knocking for this. Now, asking implies uh, a desire without specific direction. Seeking means I need to know the direction to get my answer. And knocking means I have arrived at the place of my answer. And now I'm going to persist until the door opens and the answer is given. These three taken together all demonstrate importunity. So as I'm prevailing in prayer, persevering in prayer, it's not going to be static. I'm not going to be at this one place in the spirit this one place in prayer. As I prevail in prayer, as I am persevering in prayer, I'm, as I'm persistent in prayer, he's going to take me through these different levels. And while he is 
answering this prayer, he is taking me from here to here. I am learning him. I'm in this yoke of prayer with him. I'm learning him. He's praying through me. He's talking to me and through me. I'm learning of him. I'm learning about him. I, I, I'm sharing with him. That's why the Bible says, "He that uh, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strengths." And the and the Greek word there, or the Hebrew word there for wait, means to intertwine. So a vine without any real structure can grow up, uh, wrapping itself around an oak tree, and it is as strong as the oak tree. Whatever doesn't affect the oak tree doesn't affect the vine. And whatever peril the oak tree is in is the only peril the vine's in. Because we've waited on the Lord. We've intertwined ourselves with him. The apostles understood that. You know, I'm not a cook. But I know that some meats are so much better tasting if they're marinated if they are allowed to soak up juices. We're not supposed to eat the meat with the blood, the book says. So in order for it not to be dry, and in order to help its taste, some meat you marinate. Well, let me tell you something. I'm not a piece of meat, neither are you. But there is something to say for our spirits and our beings marinating in the presence of the Lord soaking him up, just spending time with him. But you know what? We are humans. This is flesh and flesh. And so without, unfortunately, not very many are yielded enough to God that they're going to give him copious amounts of time regularly without there being some needs occasionally that motivates them to pray. It has to happen. It has to happen. It has to happen. So we have to learn to pray and yield to praying prevailing persistent prayers. And before I, I go on, let me just read this last bit of instruction uh, of, of Jesus on how to pray. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a fish, a stone, excuse me, if he ask a fish, will he give him a fish, uh, for a fish, give him a serpent? And if he, if he ask, if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? In Matthew, when Jesus was teaching this principle, he said, if ye the, being evil, uh, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to them that ask him? So we we can trust God. And even though the answer doesn't come right away, as I taught in an earlier lesson, Daniel prayed and fasted three weeks. And when... Gabriel showed up. He said to him, God heard you the first day, but your prayer has been being resisted by the prince of Persia. And so, Michael, your prince, because you kept on praying, 
because you didn't give up. Michael, your prince came, and even though you didn't know it, Michael, your prince warred for your answer and defeated the prince of Persia. And that's why I'm now come. Oh, and your praying was so effective that the prince of Persia is now defeated. And when I leave, at some point, the prince of Grecia is going to take his place. So sometimes we're praying in the spirit and we don't even know that we're praying in praying spiritual warfare. We don't even know it. We don't even know it. Praise God. So prevailing, persistent, persevering prayer. The effectual or effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a person righteous in God, by God's definition of righteousness, it accomplishes much. Now, that effective and fervent terminology, it implies persistence, perseverance, to prevail. It implies that. The word and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it is the root Greek word for the word availeth in James chapter 5 verse 16. So, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, Jesus said. And the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So it's talking about prevailing. Now, in the last part of this lesson, let's go one step farther here. Let's have an actual example of persistence from the scripture. The Canaanite woman with the daughter that was possessed of the devil. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Now, <laughs> we don't know why Jesus acted like he did till the very end of the story. So if you don't know the end of the story, you might be shocked at this statement. But he answered her, not a word. Here's this woman. She's obviously not a Jew. She's a woman of Canaan, came out from the coast. In, and, of course, Jerusalem is inland, so is Galilee from the coast. And she cried unto him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her, Not a word. Case closed. Nope. Wasn't. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. In other words... She didn't take Jesus' silence as her answer. Kept praying. Paul prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh that was given uh, to buffet him because of the abundance of revelations he had. But God answered him, no. He got an answer. God's silence is not an answer. It's a test. But he answered her, not a word. She didn't give up. 
She didn't go home. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. And he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said that to he said that to his disciples. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, notice the attitude change. She came to him out of desperation, crying for him to help her. But the second time she approached him, uh, because she obviously followed the disciples when they came to call to him and say, please, please send her away so she'll stop. She's tormenting us. She came with a different attitude. She came and worshipped him, saying, that's not synonymous with praise. It was her attitude. Uh, the Greek word literally, worship, means to prostrate yourself on your face with your arms raised out front. It's the position that you had to get into to come before king in that day. It's a, it's a totally defenseless position. I am at your mercy. Do with me as you will. So she came with that degree of humility. Her desperation was replaced by humility and her humility caused her to worship and acknowledge, you, you can do this. Help me, Lord. And he answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. She obviously heard him say, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she was a Canaanite. She went to Israelite. And she said, help me, Lord. And he, he sounds rude. He answered said, it's not meat to give the children's bread, take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, I wonder how many times the Lord tests us with what appears to be unkindness from him. First, he tests us with his silence. Then he tests us, well, what you're asking for is really not for you, test. And then it's, I can't give this to you. You're not worthy enough. You don't appear to be worthy enough. Well, just tests. And we find out they were just tests. That's not him. He's not like that. They were tests. And then she said, truth, Lord. You're right. I can't argue. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Oh, my. His silence didn't provoke her. His disciples' frustration with her persistence did not deter her. His pronunciation that she wasn't qualified did not prevent her. When she came to him worshiping and asked for help. And he said, well, you're just, you know, this, you're, you're, you're just not qualified. In fact, it would be like giving my children's bread to the dogs. And she still pressed through and said, truth, Lord. But the dogs, yet the dogs, eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. 
I know if you've studied the Bible for any length of time at all, you've read this story, and I'm sure I'm not saying anything to you that you haven't thought of or whatever. But the Holy Ghost is trying to speak to us. The statement of Jesus at this point should resonate, reverberate in our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our spirits. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, the Lord and his love is just absolutely amazing. The Bible says, We are loved with his great love wherewith he loved us. His great love wherewith he loved us. His love is unfathomable. That's why experiencing it gives us a knowledge of him and his love that is beyond all knowledge, intellectual knowledge. His love is amazing. It's amazing. But the thing that so... challenges my soul is that there were only two times in the Gospels that Jesus said to someone that their faith was great. And neither one of them were Jews. The centurion, who was a Roman army officer, and the Canaanite woman. To the two of them, he said, great is your faith. And in both cases, they exhibited a confidence in prayer and his ability to work through prayer that is challenging to us. Sometimes, sometimes those that been born of water and the spirit, et cetera, et cetera. They allow their flesh, their self-will to give them an exalted opinion of themselves. We're not saved by worthiness. We're not better than anybody. It's only by the grace of God that we've been able to believe and submit to God and obey the gospel. And I wonder if there are people out there who we wouldn't consider saved sometimes that absolutely know how to pray and have faith. It had to be very humbling to his disciples. It had to be very humbling to the crowd that was all the way around, or seemed to be most of the time, when Jesus twice said of non-Jews to a Roman and a Canaanite, great is your faith. Great is your faith. The Roman... He exercised faith by saying, you don't even need to come to my house to pray. Just wherever you are, just speak the word. My servant's going to be whole. Great was his faith. And this Canaanite woman, her faith was so persistent that she refused to take no for an answer because she knew him, she knew his power, and she knew his goodness, and she knew that he would have mercy because that's what he came to do. And even though 
he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, even though some of the kindest things he ever had to say was about a Samaritan, a Samaritan that he spoke well of versus the priest and the Levite in that same story that he didn't. A Roman army officer whose servant was sick and a Canaanite woman. In all of these elements, part of the element is a faith in him in their approach to him in receiving what it is that they desperately need. So whether it's supplication, things we know about both for ourselves and others, or intercession, which we rarely know the specifics of, or travail, which is necessary to see souls born, which we don't know who that normally would be, we need to trust for persistence in prayer. And it's not just filling up time with words. It is a confidence that he will answer. And I'm not just putting in time trying to obligate him, but I am asking, seeking, knocking, because I trust him. I trust his love. I trust his goodness. I trust his purpose. I trust his plan. And this is his will, and I'm going to pray it into existence. Now, God gives us promises. Very few people know how to live with a promise. God doesn't give us a promise so we sit back and do nothing, fold our arms and watch him do it. No. He doesn't need to tell us that. We would still be just as amazed when he does it, whether he told us in advance or not. Part of the reason he tells us in advance so we'll know it's him and not coincidence as we believe. But that's not all. He tells us in advance so that we will pray the promise. That's why Paul said one of the offensive weapons of the spiritual warrior is the sword of the spirit, and the which is, he said, the word of God. But it's not logos in the Greek there. It is rhema. And rhema is reo, the utterance of the living voice, and Ma, the suffix M-A, is the result of. So rhema is taking what God said and repeating it in prayer, praying it. Now, he's God. Why don't you just do it? Because that's not his plan. It's not his plan. He uses all kind of things to motivate us to pray beyond ourselves. Very few of us ever reach the place that we don't need him to do anything to get us to pray. I wish I was there all the time. I'm not. I want to be, but I'm not there. I'm closer than I've been, but I'm still not there. So he still has to use things to get my attention, to get me to pray. He still has to use situations to reorder my priorities because I'm busy today and say, no, you're not busy. You're going to do what I tell you to do. This needs to be done today. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you and I 
by the grace of God, will allow the Spirit of God to produce a, in us great faith, faith that is expressed through persisting, persevering, prevailing prayer. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God bless you. Amen.